Timothy, hear the word of the Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogies, which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without having any understanding either by what they are saying or the things about which they make their confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You may be seated as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we come into this word today, we desire to be taught. And we desire to be taught by the sound doctrine that has been proclaimed to us from the apostles and has been carried down in the tradition of holy writ to this very day. It is not the uh, tradition of any church or denomination that these things have been established or spoken about or authority of some particular body, but even this body sits under the authority of the scriptures. We are thankful that by the power of your spirit, these words have been preserved for us to this very day, so that according to the declaration of the gospel and according to the preaching of this word, we may be sanctified in your spirit. We may be sanctified in your truth, made holy and prepared for that day when Christ returns to receive all of his saints to himself. Purify us in this word as we read it today, and may we desire that good, rich, and true word, not those things that might be perverted by the devices of men, but those things that are according to the preaching of your truth. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. It was a hundred years ago, in 1923, that J. Gresham Machen wrote his famous book, Christianity and Liberalism. This book was written in response largely to a sermon that was preached by Harry Emerson Fosdick. And this sermon was entitled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Fosdick had declared in this particular sermon, which was preached in 1922, that there were certain things that were taught about in Scripture that surely we must believe in, things like the incarnation of Christ, his resurrection, and so forth. But Fosdick said that it was more about the experience of the Christian than it was the adherence to particular doctrine, that Christ lived a life that was more an example for us that we might experience 
something in our faith and our walk in imitation of Christ rather than something we believe or a truth that we affix ourselves to. So Fosdick said, we might believe in something like the incarnation of Christ. After all, many religions have believed in the incarnation of a particular deity that they worship. So why would Christianity be any different? And so therefore, if we live according to these Christian things or this example that Jesus had given, then we live or exemplify that incarnation by our very lifestyle. Or, for example, a resurrection. You don't necessarily have to believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, for there are other traditions that believe in some kind of a spiritual resurrection of Christ, and that's some kind of a resurrection. So at least you believe in some form of that doctrine. And if you simply live a good life or a life that you would think would be uh, the, the kind of life that Jesus would want you to live, then aren't you living that resurrection life? So everything was about experience and not according to a true doctrine or a true teaching that was taught according to the word. Well, this prompted Machen to write his book, Christianity and Liberalism, or rather to more specifically say by the title of this book that Christianity is not liberalism, or more specifically even that liberalism is not Christianity. We are not at our own whims or fancy to craft these doctrines into what we want them to mean or what we want them to say. And Christianity is not marked by simply a life of a certain experience, but rather it is affixed upon truths that were proclaimed. As the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4, that I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised according to the scriptures. Paul is delivering something that was proclaimed first by the Lord, as said in Hebrews 1 and 2, and then it was proclaimed to his apostles which was also then proclaimed to the people. It was even written down that we have it recorded for us exactly what was said and exactly what we should believe. In fact, one of those statements, one of the most indicting statements that Jesus said in his ministry to the Pharisees who were teaching falsely were these words, Have you not read and so the truth that we believe and the truth that we proclaim is therefore that which has been written down for our benefit, as said in Romans 15, 4, that we might be edified by the scriptures and we might edify others as well. I was listening to Ligonier this past week, Renewing Your Mind in particular, with uh, Stephen Nichols, who was recalling the importance of that work, Christianity and Liberalism, that was written a hundred years ago by Machen. Still a very powerful book and a relevant book to this day. For there are many false teachers out there, and this is very common, very prevalent among American evangelicalism, that is more about experience than it is about the truth. And they will even reshape and craft essential Christian doctrines into something that is more palatable or more friendly to people than being faithful to what is written in Scripture. 
As we are coming into a study of these pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, it's interesting to note that right after Paul's greeting, the first order of business that he has for Timothy as a pastor of this church is to not teach any different doctrine, but to hold fast to that word which was first delivered by the Lord to his apostles and is given even now to his church. So in the organization of this passage, as we're looking at it today, verses 3 through 11, we have this broken up into three parts. First of all, we have this contrast between false doctrine and sound doctrine. That's in verses 3 through 5. Secondly, Paul presents a contrast between sound teachers and false teachers in verses 6 and 7. And then in verses 8 through 11, we have a contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous. And Paul uses the law to distinguish the righteous from the unrighteous, and this on the basis of the sound doctrine of the preaching of the gospel. So once again, first of all, we have a contrast between false doctrine and sound doctrine. Secondly, a contrast between sound teachers and false teachers. And then lastly, this contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous on the basis of the sound doctrine that is taught. Now, before I get into verse 3 here, I want to recap very quickly verses 1 and 2, this greeting that we looked at last week. For Paul establishes himself as the author and signifies Timothy as the one who is the recipient. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God. Paul is not an apostle by his own whim or his own desire, for we know of the apostle Paul in his own autobiography that he was a rock star among Pharisees. What would Paul want to give up that status for in order to, to give up that position to then become an apostle of Christ in which he was going to be beaten and tortured for the rest of his life? So it's by the command of God that Paul was appointed to this place. And we're going to read about that a little bit more next week when we continue on in chapter 1 into verse 12 as Paul talks a little bit further about this ministry that he had been appointed to by the ordination of God. So it's by the command of God our Savior and of Christ our hope that Paul addresses Timothy, my true child in the faith, a man that he had brought into an understanding of the gospel, grace, mercy, and peace he issues to Timothy from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this is actually a very important introduction, not just for the words that Paul says in giving to his servant Timothy, but that we understand that this was written by Paul. Just within the last hundred years, with this rise of liberalism that has come about in evangelicalism, there has been doubt placed upon the authorship of this particular letter. And not just 1 Timothy, but even 2 Timothy and Titus. This is a relatively new development. This doesn't exist in the first 1900 years in the history of the church. But only recently has there been questions that have been called by certain scholars to say, did Paul really write this? Or was this written pseudonymously? Somebody else wrote it and they just affixed Paul's name to it. Now, where do these questions come from? Bart Ehrman is one such person who fancies himself a scholar of the New Testament. And indeed, he is very studied in the New Testament, though he himself is not a Christian. He is an atheist. 
He is the author of a very famous work entitled Misquoting Jesus, which was a New York Times bestseller. And in fact, many of the seeds that were planted by men like Bart Ehrman are the reason why works like The Da Vinci Code gained the popularity that they did 20 years ago. And so Bart Ehrman had said that this particular letter especially is one that may not have actually been written by Paul. Now, on what basis does he make some sort of declaration like this? Well, he says if you take the other 10 letters of Paul, so the letters that came before this, and you might also include Philemon, if those are indeed written by Paul, there's language in First and Second Timothy and Titus that are so different from those other 10 letters that we cannot say that these were definitively written by Paul. He uses words and language in the pastoral epistles that are much different from his other letters. There was an apologist named Mike Lycona who challenged that idea, and he said, I dare say that we should take all of Bart Ehrman's books and we should put them into some sort of a lexicon by which we can evaluate the different words that he uses. And if we can find one book that uses different words than he uses in any of his other books, then we might declare that book was not actually written by Bart Ehrman. That was how Lycona challenged Ehrman's claim. What doctrines might be present in First and Second Timothy and Titus that would cause liberal scholars today to challenge whether or not those books were actually written by the men who were, who were said to have written them. In, in the pastoral epistles, of course, it was, it was Paul. Why would that book go so challenged? Well, what do we come to in 1 Timothy? But eventually we get to chapter 2 where we're going to read that women are not to be pastors, but men. And we'll even see in the book of Titus the qualifications of an elder is that he must first be a man. And that he must meet certain qualifications. And in chapter 2 of Titus, there are certain things that God has ordained for men to do in the church. And certain things that women are ordained to do. A man shouldn't venture into a woman's role. And a woman should not venture into a man's role. For God has appointed these to fill certain roles, certain jobs, certain functions in the church. Well, the liberals don't like that. Because as you know from the rise of feminism... And, uh, and from even egalitarianism, this declaration that a woman can do everything that a man can do, and in our modern times, and I'm talking within the last couple of decades, that has gone even further to say a woman can do everything that a man can do, but better. <laughs> so, of course, they're going to have a problem with these declarations that are stated in these pastoral epistles, that a pastor, a teacher, is to be a man. And a woman is not to have teaching authority over a man, as we see in chapter 2, but is to remain quiet. So for these reasons, with the questions of gender and sexuality that have arisen in our culture, it has been fanciful for the liberal theologians to say, or to cast doubt on, the authentic authorship of First and Second Timothy and Titus. Because if we can make you doubt who really wrote this, then there would therefore be doubt as to this being truly the word of God. That God would not want you to believe these things because it was written later on when somebody wanted to be a lot more controversial with roles in the church and wanted to be patriarchal and impose certain things on women. And so, and so doubt is cast on the authorship of these books. But I dare, clear, I, I, I dare say to you that if we are to say that Paul was not really the author of 1 Timothy, then it would be to say that the word of God errs. And if we say that God's word errs, then we say that God is therefore in error, and he in his own word would not be perfect. 
Would we say that the Bible lies? Of course not. Far be it for me to even declare such a thing. And so we take these things, as has been the belief in the church for 1,900 years, that this declaration is true. Paul is the author of 1 Timothy, and Timothy is the recipient of this letter. And again, those things important to establish so that we see the apostolic authority by which these things are claimed. This is not Paul speaking on his own authority. He is speaking under the command of God our Savior and of Christ our Lord. So that the words that we read here are every bit as much the word of Christ. Who is our king and the head of the church. And so we go from that greeting, that declaration of Paul being the author of this. With the apostolic authority by which he declares these things. Into this charge that he gives to Timothy. So first of all, we look at verses 3 through 5, where Paul says, As I urged you when going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And we have these three pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And at the beginning of these pastoral epistles, the first charge that is made is to not teach any different doctrine. We have this contrast between false doctrine and sound doctrine. As we talked about last week in the introduction to this letter, Paul is going to Macedonia. That was where he was when he sent Timothy from there to Ephesus, this church that he loved, that Paul had so affixed his heart to. that He sent this, this church that he had such affinity for his most trusted protege, Timothy, that he might become a pastor there. And Timothy becomes among the elders, but we would probably understand Timothy to have that more prominent teaching role of the elders. Just like I am an elder at Providence Reformed Baptist Church, and I am one of three, but I don't hold any greater authority than Chris or Alan have. We are all equal among elders, but the expectation would be upon me to lead the teaching of the church. And so that would, uh, that would be the responsibility that is given to Timothy here as he comes to the church and Ephesus. And so what he is to do as he lead, leads that teaching from the pulpit, you might say, is he is to charge certain persons not to teach a doctrine different than that gospel that had been proclaimed from the apostles. Now, the interesting thing about that here is that the gospel is really assumed here in that Timothy knows exactly what Paul is talking about with regards to the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that the gospel doesn't come up. In fact, next week, as we read into the next half of chapter 1, Paul will say in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. That's the gospel. That's the declaration of the gospel here in chapter 1. Very simply, why did Christ come to save sinners? And that should even prompt us to have to ask, well, who are sinners? We are. Amen. And we are saved by Christ in the person and work of all that he did and fulfilled and said. We also have, as we read last week, in the purpose statement of this letter, in verses 14 to 16, Paul said, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. 
Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And even that also is a declaration of the gospel in that creedal form in which it is said. So the gospel here at the very beginning assume, but that not to say that it isn't spoken, for we do have the gospel declared later on in this letter. But certainly Timothy knows exactly what Paul is referring to. When Paul says, charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. Now we understand by that statement that there apparently must be certain persons in the church in Ephesus who were going away from sound doctrine and starting to teach what what Paul says later on in verse 4, myths and endless genealogies. So some have come into the church and have spoken some of these things that promote speculations rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. So that, again, is... It's not the gospel articulated, but that's what Paul is referring to. The stewardship from God that is by faith is the gospel. And Timothy is to be a good steward of that. Now, what is a steward? We'll get to that here in just a moment. So, Timothy is to ensure that these men who have come into the church are not teaching anything different but the true gospel of God that was proclaimed. That gospel which is understood to be that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a death that we were supposed to die, taking the wrath of God upon himself with his death on the cross. He was buried in a tomb and rose again on the third day. He was seen by many, as Paul proclaimed in 1 Corinthians 15, hundreds of brothers, over 500 brothers that saw him alive in the 40 days between his resurrection from the grave and his ascension into heaven. And then he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God. And there is the promise that he is coming back again to judge the living and the dead. Even when Paul proclaimed the gospel to the Greeks at the Areopagus in Athens, even there when he proclaimed it to pagan men for the first time, he said to them that the times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And he has shown by whom he will judge the world by raising him from the dead. There are many teachers out there, uh, many Christian teachers who will start apologetics ministries. And I've noticed that they seem to be uh, very akin to either naming their ministry Acts 17, which was that chapter which we read about Paul's address there at the Areopagus, or they might call their ministry Mars Hill because another name for uh, the Areopagus was Mars Hill. So they might name their apologetics ministry something like that, Acts 17 or Mars Hill or something to that effect. And so whenever I see somebody name their ministry that, I'm really curious to know, are you just wanting to argue against unbelievers about what it is that they believe and what the truth is, in which case you do that graciously, you're fulfilling a work that we should be doing in defense of the gospel. But I've noticed that with a vast majority of those ministries, with those that call themselves Mars Hill or Acts 17 or something to that effect, they almost never talk about the judgment of God. This liberalism movement that Machen was responding to 
100 years ago was, uh, was largely about two things. The liberalists wanted to, wanted to do two things. Number one is they wanted to, to not talk about the wrath of God. Let's not talk about God's wrath or his anger against sin or the judgment of God that is coming because that's not very friendly to people. They don't really like that. So let's not talk about God's judgment. And furthermore, if we're not going to talk about God's judgment, the second aspect of the liberalism movement is that we need to, we need to erase sin. So the sin of mankind, not really that big a deal. Everybody makes mistakes, therefore. you know. So who can really say that they're more righteous than another? So by trying to undo the teaching of the wrath of God and by trying to erase the sinfulness of the depravity of man, then they came into these liberalist ideas of just simply life is about experience. The Christian life is more about experience than a truth or a doctrine that we're supposed to believe. And so it was even at the Areopagus that Paul preached to pagan men and talked about the judgment of God that was coming. This should be present in Christian teaching. For what is it that we have to offer the world if there is not a judgment that is coming? I mean, all we're gathering for and meeting for on Sunday morning is to just kind of be a social club. And we've got certain teachings that we like to hear every once in a while as though we are intellectuals and these are just the ideas that we have affixed ourselves to. But there's nothing really that we have to offer the world because anybody in the world can just kind of go after what it is that they believe or, or, or what makes them feel fulfilled in life. If you want to feel like what we're teaching is fulfilling, then hey, come and join us. But there's no warning given to the world that the wrath of God is coming. In fact, according to John 3.36, the wrath of God is already upon you. For he who has the Son has life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains upon you. We know that the judgment of God is coming against all those who have broken God's law. We have the statement of God's law that is coming up in this section that we're looking at today. The only way to be saved from the judgment of God is to believe upon the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he said and what he did to satisfy God's wrath so that by faith in Jesus, we are no longer under that wrath, but we are under his love and his grace. How is it that we are able to sing so joyfully this morning about the goodness of God? How is it that we know that he loves us and that he has forgiven us our sins and welcomed us into his kingdom so that we're no longer objects of his wrath, but objects of his love? We know this because of Christ, because we look at Christ, because we see what Christ has done for us. And the reason why God loves us is because he loves his son. And we who are clothed in the righteousness of his son are adopted into the family of God as his sons and daughters. My friends, we can sit here this morning without any fear of the wrath and judgment of God that would be upon us because we know that in Christ, those things are satisfied so that we may worship and rejoice in what Christ has done, what the Father has done through his Son. These are the doctrines that we should believe. These are the things that we should proclaim.
But there were others that came into the church and they were wandering away, Paul says, to myths and endless genealogies. They were devoting themselves to things that were not the stewardship from God that is by faith. Rather, it were things that promote speculations. You have here that is declared in verse 4 what the false teachers were teaching and what the outcome of that is. They're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. What's the outcome? It promotes speculations. So you no longer have the truth of the gospel that has been proclaimed that we're devoting ourselves to, but rather you just have, I mean, it's, it's like whatever is interesting to me today. That's what it is that I'm going to teach to you. Now, my friends, you know exactly what I taught last week. You can go back to the sermon and listen, it, listen to it, and you know that we're in 1 Timothy. You know what I'm going to teach next week. When you go home today, you're not going to be in mystery of what Gabe's going to be talking about. Because you can open up your Bible and you read the next part. I bet you that's the verse that Gabe is going to be preaching on next week. Because that's our devotion to a series and, and our uh, exposition of a particular book as we're reading through 1 Timothy. I'm not standing up here to say whatever is interesting to me today. Now, I will say this is very interesting to me today. Because I love God's word and I love to preach it. But whatever I am preaching is coming from this. Whatever I preach needs to be subject to this. So you're testing even what I say by the word of God. It's not the fanciful thing that I was listening to on a podcast this past week. Oh, that sounds pretty interesting. I bet I, I, I think I can get up here and say what I heard on the podcast this past week and you guys will be as interested in it as I was. Uh, in in the, the town that I came from in Kansas, in Junction City, there was a church that I was told about where uh, they did not have a fixed pastor. There were just certain men, which they called elders, that would teach on a regular basis in the church, but they kind of prided themselves on the fact that we don't, we don't have a paid pastor. Well, I talked to somebody from that church. was like, well, what is, what is the preaching like on Sunday? And, and he said, well, this past Sunday, such and such an elder, he just came up to the pulpit with a newspaper, and he opened up the newspaper and he read the story of something that was going on in the news and then tied that back into something that was scriptural. Now, maybe the gospel was proclaimed. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that, was the, uh, uh, if that was even in the sermon that Sunday or not. But what's guiding the teaching? The newspaper. Whatever is happening in the news, there's no being subject to God's word. And so then pieces of God's word just kind of get pulled out and put in there. So you got some good Christianese that goes around it. You're sound, it sounds like you're getting something from God's word, but the guiding of the teaching that morning is not the Bible. It's whatever was written in the newspaper. And just as the news can change from one week to the next, so can people's opinions and interests and speculations and other things. And so Paul talks here about those who had devoted themselves to myths and to endless genealogies. Now, it doesn't detail for us exactly what these myths were or what the endless genealogies were, but we can get a pretty good idea. For most likely, these men were Judaizers. And when it talks about, uh, about myths, it would be those things even beyond the law, additions to the law and stuff that were beyond the law that these men may have uh, been devoting themselves to. What kind of things that would have been beyond the law? Well, one idea we get is from the book of Colossians. In Colossians, sorry, I didn't have it marked, so I'm having to turn there. In Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16, 
Uh, this is one, I'm sorry. Chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So you had some Judaizers there that were saying that you must eat and drink these things, you must honor these festivals, and you must worship on this day. And if you don't do those things, then you're not really saved. That was what the Judaizers were saying. But it went on beyond that. Paul said these are, uh, these are a shadow of things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Those things were there to point to Christ. And he goes on to say, Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, which is self-punishment, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And who is the head? That is Christ. So the teaching should be affixed to Christ. It should be flowing from the gospel of Christ. But Paul talks about these Judaizers who have wandered off into myth and other things, and they even go on in the worship of angels and detail of visions. And likely, that was the kind of stuff that was coming into Ephesus at this particular time, which was not that far away from Colossae, that Paul is warning Timothy about regarding some of these teachers. Charge these men not to teach these different doctrines, devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, an endless genealogy, so, so that, first of all, I just detailed was the myth. You have the doctrines of men, those things that have been added to the law, and you have uh, legends or origins of angels. That's myth. Then endless genealogies would be those Jewish genealogies, same sort of genealogies that we read in the Old Testament. But why would that be bad for them to be going on and on about genealogies? Well, because they were affixing to those genealogies things that the genealogies didn't say. So they were coming up with myths and stories and putting those into the genealogies and claiming through those stories that they had some knowledge that the scriptures don't give you. So I'm giving you that, that knowledge according to this genealogy because I happen to be a descendant of that line. So now I can tell you something about this particular genealogy that you wouldn't know or you wouldn't have this knowledge in any other way. That's one way those genealogies were uh, uh, were, were misused. A second way they were misused was very similar to ways that somebody might read a horoscope today. So in your horoscope, you have your sign, the particular time of the year that you were born in, and when this star or this planet is aligned in the sky in this way, then this is the fate that is going to happen to you this week or otherwise, which is why people open up the newspaper, or who opens a newspaper anymore, why they bring up the news online and will read their horoscope for that day or that week. So the genealogies were working a very similar sort of a way. Because you are a descendant of this line, you can expect these things. Or because I'm descendant of this line, I hold this kind of authority. So these were ways in, in which endless genealogies were being misused in the church. And what do they do but promote speculation? So there's nothing true, there's nothing fixed upon it. It's just fanciful opinion that can change from one person to the next or from one week to the next. But Paul says that you are to be devoted to the stewardship of God that is by faith. Why stewardship? Why is the gospel defined in that way? What is a steward? A steward 
is somebody that the master of the house has placed in charge of his house. So the steward is a person that takes care of or oversees all the things that belong to a master. The, the, the closest thing that we might have in culture today uh, that we might think of as being like a steward would be a butler. So the butler of the house makes sure all the order of the house is happening the way that it's supposed to, and he's making, he's making sure that all the master's affairs are in order. Well, that's what a steward would do. And so as Timothy is, is being given this charge to teach the doctrines of God to his church, then he has been given a stewardship. He is responsible to ensure that these things are being taken care of and proclaimed in the household of God. And it is, notice that Paul says that it is by faith. We believe these things that have been said. If we're wandering away into myth and speculation, how much can we really say that we believe the truth that was proclaimed? The fact that we go away from the truth into speculative things is in itself a declaration that I don't think the truth is all that true, nor does it have the power to accomplish the thing that God has said that it's meant to accomplish. We read in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you believe that? Then you believe that there is nothing else but the gospel by which men can be saved. Why devote ourselves to speculative things that can save nobody or can even sanctify anybody? And so Paul says the speculations are contrary to the stewardship of God that is by faith. And that's what Timothy is to be devoting himself to. And by the way, that being the theme of what we're reading about this morning so that we would understand the stewardship of God that is by faith. Again, understanding the importance of the gospel and those things that flow from the gospel. Before I go to the next part, part 2 in verses 6 and 7, turn with me to chapter 6. For you see Paul saying a similar thing again toward the end of the letter. Look at chapter 6 and beginning in verse 3. This is 1 Timothy 6.3. So at the, at the beginning of the letter, Paul says, Don't let anyone teach anything different teach the sound truth that you had learned. And he says again at the end of the letter, in 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So what Paul is saying here is that this teaching not only brings about salvation by those who believe it, it also brings about sanctification. For those who believe it will grow in godliness, they become more Christ-like. The more that we hear these things and we obey what is being said. So you have the sound words of our Lord Christ and the teaching that accords with or produces godliness. If anyone teaches anything different, look at verse 4. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. And for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So what does sound teaching produce? Godliness. What does teaching that is apart from sound doctrine produce? All this other stuff. Envy? Dissension, slander, 
Does this sound like a good, happy, friendly church here? Evil suspicions and constant friction. There is never any unity. Whenever we affix ourselves to doctrines that are contrary to the gospel, but it is only by the preaching of the gospel and believing those things that flow from the gospel that we're, that we're unified as a church and we grow in godliness, that we may grow one another according to these things as well. So back to chapter 1, we've considered here the contrast between false doctrine and sound doctrine in verses 3 through 5. Secondly, in verses 6 and 7, we have this contrast between sound teachers and false teachers. So you have the good doctrine that is taught by those who are sound in their theology, and then you have the false doctrine that is taught by those who are unsound. So look at the way that Paul uh, presents this beginning in verse, in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make their confident assertions. So I apologize. Part one is verses three through four. Second part is verses five through seven. But notice that, that in these two presentations of, of truth and false that Paul kind of uh, uh, flips them around. So at the very beginning in verses 3 through 4, he says, don't let anybody teach any different doctrine, so addressing those false teachers, but be devoted to those things that are the stewardship from God that is by faith. Then in the next part, verses 5 through 7, he actually starts with the stewardship of God that is by faith and then comes back to those who are teaching falsely. So we begin in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, or as I read last week from the LSB, an unhypocritical faith. So what is our motivation? What should be Timothy's intentions in the ways that he teaches? It should be out of love for God and for his word and for the people of God. And that issues from a pure heart. That Timothy has good intentions with what it is that he says. And the purity of his heart is a desire for holiness. When you look at the liberalism movement, when you look at those who have, who have delved away from Scripture and into more speculative things, you will find that their intentions are not pure. That they desire things of the flesh. Or they might desire money. Or they might desire to appease more people or, or sound friendly to a worldly and sinful people. These are not pure motivations. But a pure motivation is a person who desires holiness. They love God and they love his people to the point that they would be willing to die for this truth that they proclaim. Amen. So the aim of our charge is love. Our motivation, our desire would be love from a pure heart, a good conscience. In other words, we live what we believe. As I'm up here proclaiming these things to you, may I not be standing behind this pulpit feeling convicted in my heart that I wasn't doing the things this past week that I'm telling you that you need to be doing. But there's a consistency in our message and in our living. That the doctrine that we believe actually leads to holy living. And the holy living is the outflow of the good doctrine that we believe. And so we, 
We believe these things, we affix ourselves to these things out of a pure heart and a good conscience, and then lastly, out of a sincere faith. It's almost like Paul is saying the same thing three times. Pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, or an unhypocritical faith. We believe these things, and you know that I believe it, because you can see in my life a reflection of those things that I proclaim. Some of you may have seen in the news something that happened a couple of weeks ago. There was a pastor, a Southern Baptist pastor, as a matter of fact, it was discovered that had a secret life online. He was dressing up like a woman and posting pictures of himself as a woman online and all, all other manner of unseemliness that I will not even repeat from up here. But when he was caught in these things, and it made international news, it was in U.S. headlines, and then I, uh, the first time I actually read about it was actually in a British newspaper when I came upon it. When those things were uncovered, he addressed his church, and he said, I have a secret life to, uh, uh, to relieve stress. That was the reason why he said that he did it. But he said that it does not interfere with my holy life, as though those could be two different things. That my life in church is always holy, but my life in private is not so much holy. Well, because these things had gained such uh, uh, an international attention, and the man knew that his life and his reputation were, were over, he solved this dilemma by taking his own life and committed suicide. And all of those things happened in the span of just about a week. But this man recognized his, his own faults, and that they were going to be held against him. And he experienced grief in his heart over that. But it was, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, not a godly grief that leads to repentance, but a worldly grief that led to death, and very seriously in his life. There is to be a consistency in what we say and what we do. That the good doctrine that we believe also produces the holy living that we live. And when we sin, because inevitably we will, as we continue to war against those things that exist in our flesh, we must come to God and ask forgiveness for those sins. For as 1 John 1.9 tells us, that if we ask God forgiveness for our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This man who had this secret lifestyle was clearly unqualified for the pulpit, but he still could have been saved. Instead, he took matters into his own hands and may God be with his family. So those who swerve from these things, Paul says in verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these, they've wandered away into vain discussion. They desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand either what they are saying or the things about which they make their confident assertions. I had an exchange with a, with a young man a few weeks ago in which he said that a pastor, a faithful pastor, should be declaring from his pulpit that if a man truly wants to take care of his family, then he must learn how to use a firearm and he must carry one himself. And he said this is a matter of basic obedience to God. Now, I engaged with the man and I said, let me, let me ask you this again, just for clarification, so that I understand you rightly. You're saying that if I'm going to be a faithful pastor, 
I need to stand in front of my congregation and I need to tell the men that you have a responsibility to own and possess a firearm and know how to use it and carry it for the protection of your family. And you're telling me that I must say this as a matter of basic obedience to God. I declared it exactly like that, so I was hearing him rightly, and he responded to me, yes. <laughs> My friends, that is pharisaical. There is nothing in Scripture at all that requires a man to carry a firearm. Now, my friends, if you want to carry a gun to protect your family, by all means, I'm not telling you that you should not do that, but that is a matter of conscience. That is not something that is commanded or declared in Scripture for you to do. This is exactly going beyond what God has commanded and creating new commands. They desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're saying. They have no understanding of the doctrine that they're claiming. You must believe and you must follow. It turns out that what they're teaching is actually the doctrines of men. The very thing that Jesus confronted in the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7 that you uh, are teaching as doctrines of God the commandments of men. And so we must be careful about those things. We must understand even the law rightly. Now, as Paul proclaimed the gospel, and he proclaimed this gospel of grace, that we believe and so, uh, and so we, by the grace of God, have our sins forgiven. And there is no sin that we've committed that disqualifies us from the kingdom. God will forgive any sin by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of this, there were people that would say of Paul that he did away with the law. Because you're saying we can be saved by grace, and it's not by any work that we do that we are saved, but by the work of Christ. We believe in Jesus, and so therefore we're saved well, then Paul doesn't want to have anything to do with the law. He is kicking out the law and saying you can just be saved just by believing in Jesus, and then you can go live your life in whatever way that you want to, and it doesn't matter. And so Paul, responding to this, says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Because this accusation has been made of Paul, and we can read those accusations in Romans and in other letters of his as well, because that accusation has been made of Paul, he finds it necessary to have to say, we know the law is good, but there's a right way to use the law. And the law actually reveals to us our sin and our need for a Savior. Now, that is the next part of this section, which I'm going to get to next week. So we're going to look at verses 8 through 11 and look at those verses a little bit more intently, where we'll see this contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous. But as we finish this up today, let me give you three applications. We'll wrap this up with these three applications and then partake in the Lord's table. Number one, we must know the difference between truth and lies. Do you believe that there is a doctrine that damns? Do you believe that? That if somebody believes this, they'll go to hell. Do you believe that there is a doctrine that saves? That if we believe this, we are not condemned. But we have eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord. 
then that is why it is important that we must identify the truth from lies. Eternal souls actually depend on this. That's the first application. Second application. We must be willing to distinguish between teachers that are true and teachers that are false. As we read from Matthew chapter 7 today, Jesus said, Beware of wolves in sheep's clothing, and you will know them by their fruit. So there are things that we can identify about a teacher as to whether he is true or false, by the doctrine that he teaches and even by the lifestyle that he lives. There are many teachers that are out there that might even be able to teach good doctrine, but by their lifestyle they are unqualified. And so even they should not be given those platforms to be preaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read about the gifts of the Spirit. And one of those gifts is the gift of discernment, an ability to distinguish between spirits is the way that it's put in the English Standard Version. So there are some that the Spirit has actually gifted with that, with that ability, with a, with a more keen sense to recognize true teaching from false teaching. As Charles Spurgeon has said, the gift of discernment is not so much about being able to recognize what is right and wrong. It's more being able to recognize what is right from what is almost right. And so certain persons have that gift to be able to recognize there's something wrong with that. And if we know that there are persons in our congregation that have such gifts, it would be right to listen to them. That they might help to edify and build up the church in the truth and warn against those teachers that are false. Though there are persons that will have a more gifted sense in being able to identify true and false teachers, it is nonetheless a responsibility of everybody in the church to be able to do this. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false teachers have gone out into the world. So it is the responsibility even among the members of the church to do this. So number one, we must know the difference between truth and lies. Number two, we must be willing and able to distinguish between which teachers are true and which teachers are false. And number three, we must hold each other accountable to the truth for the sake of each other and for the purity of the church. When we get to Titus, Paul will say to Titus that false teachers must be silenced. And in chapter 3, he says, you warn a divisive man, a man who's divisive because he's teaching divisive doctrines. You warn a divisive man once, you warn him a second time, and after that you have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, to purge the evil person from among you, that, who, uh, that person who is engaging in sin and will not repent of it. So there is... Uh, a responsibility upon each and every one of us in the church that we know what is true and we hold each other accountable to that truth. And where somebody is believing falsely and wandering away into lies, those things must be disciplined. And we do that for the sake of one another and for the purity of the church. So once again, summarizing those applications, let us know the difference between truth and lies. Let us be able to distinguish between those teachers that are true and those which are false. And let us hold one another accountable to the truth for the sake of one another and for the purity of the church. And this is how we are all responsible 
for the stewardship from God that is by faith. As we come to this table, we remember the sacrifice that was made. This is not something speculative. It is not something that we experienced in life. It was something that was proclaimed to us in the word of God. And exactly the way that this came about. With Jesus living that perfect sinless life. And with his disciples in the upper room the night before he is arrested and taken away unto his death. Breaking bread with them and saying this is my body that has been broken for you. With a cup saying this is the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. We are not free to speculate about these elements that we are going to partake in. We understand them according to what Christ said about himself. And so let us take a moment of silence to prepare our hearts to take of this table. And then ushers, if you would please come forward in uh, being ready to distribute the elements. Let us pray.